Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. People v. Purdue, decided December 14, 2023. Singas, J. The importance of identification evidence is, of course, self-evident, People v. Riley. In every trial, the people bear the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is the person who committed the charged crime. But because identification evidence may bear certain weaknesses and dangers, this court has implemented constitutional, statutory, and decisional safeguards to ensure the reliability of this most potent evidence. On this appeal, we are asked whether a witness was properly allowed to identify defendant Thomas Perdue as the perpetrator for the first time in court, without having been subjected to any pretrial identification procedure. We hold that, when the people call a witness who may make a first-time, in-court identification, they must ensure that the defendant is aware of that possibility as early as practicable so that the defendant has a meaningful opportunity to request alternative identification procedures. If the defendant explicitly requests such procedures, a trial court may exercise its discretion to fashion any measures necessary to reduce the risk of misidentification. The ultimate determination of whether to admit a first-time, in-court identification, like any evidence, rests within the evidentiary gatekeeping discretion of the trial court. The court must balance the probative value of the identification against the dangers of misidentification and other prejudice to the defendant. Here, defendant was aware from pretrial discovery that the witness might make a first-time, in-court identification but sought only preclusion of the identification. Because the witness's testimony and pretrial statements established the reliability of her first-time, in-court identification, and the lack of formal notice did not significantly prejudice defendant, the trial court did not abuse its discretion in denying defendant's request to preclude it. We therefore affirm. 1. In 2017, defendant shot the victim in the leg during a house party. A neighbor, the witness at issue in this case, called 911 to report the shooting. On the call, the witness described the shooter as a black, skinny, dark-skinned man, wearing a white baseball cap, gray pants, and white sneakers. After law enforcement responded to the scene, the witness told officers that she could identify the shooter if necessary. Her statements to police were captured on video recorded by an officer's body camera video, which was provided to defendant before trial. No pretrial identification procedure was conducted with this witness. At trial, the victim testified and identified defendant as the person who shot him. The witness subsequently testified that, on the night of the shooting, there was a light on the front porch that illuminated the front of the house where the shooting took place. She stated that she saw the shooter standing right outside the house, right there by the grass, right there by the walkway, in my plain view sight, out of my window. She further testified that the shooter was a dark-skinned black man, approximately six feet tall, with a mustache and a goatee, and was wearing gray jeans, white sneakers, and a white cap. The people asked whether the witness would recognize the individual if she saw him again and the witness answered, of course. Defendant objected, protesting that the witness did not participate in a pretrial identification procedure. 
defendant asked the court to preclude the witness's first time, in court identification, arguing that the identification procedure was suggestive because there was only one person sitting in the courtroom who could possibly be the suspect. The court ruled that if the witness can ID defendant in court, she can ID him in court and that defendant could challenge the identification on cross-examination. The witness then identified defendant as the shooter. She also pointed out the shooter and the victim in surveillance video. On cross-examination, the witness testified that she had never seen the shooter before the night of the shooting and that, despite speaking to the police and to the prosecutor, she was never asked to identify defendant prior to trial. During his closing argument, defendant vigorously attacked the in-court identification. The jury convicted defendant of all charges and the appellate division affirmed the judgment. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 2. This court has recognized the very real danger of wrongful convictions presented by mistaken eyewitness identification and has taken steps to protect criminal defendants from such miscarriages of justice. See People v. Boone, People v. Marshall, People v. Santiago, see also Riley. Most of this court's rules imposing constitutional limits on identification procedures involve suggestiveness originating with law enforcement officers, People v. Marte, citing People v. Adams. The concern is that suggestive pretrial identification procedures arranged by law enforcement will influence and taint the witness's subsequent in-court identification of the defendant, resulting in possible misidentification, see Riley. To address that concern, this court has generally precluded in-court identifications made following an unduly suggestive pretrial identification procedure, allowing a witness to make an in-court identification only if the people can demonstrate an independent source for the witness's identification that was not influenced by the suggestive pretrial procedure, Adams. We have also recognized the possibility that trial courts might need to take protective procedures when the suggestiveness of a pretrial procedure does not originate with law enforcement, see Marshall, see also Marte. Concerning identifications made at trial, this court and many others have recognized the inherent suggestiveness of the traditional in-court identification procedure, with a single defendant sitting at a table with defense counsel, see Perry v. New Hampshire, People v. White. United States v. Archibald, People v. James, People v. Hugler. As with an unduly suggestive pretrial identification, it will often be immediately clear to the witness who the accused defendant is, especially if the witness has a rudimentary knowledge of courtroom seating arrangements. The principal danger is that, faced with the pressures of testifying at trial, the witness will identify the defendant as the perpetrator simply because the defendant is sitting in the appropriate spot and not because the witness recognizes the defendant as the same person that they observed during the crime. Inasmuch as the traditional courtroom seating arrangement may itself suggest to the witness who should be identified, trial courts must be vigilant to ensure that where a witness has not previously identified the defendant in a properly conducted pretrial identification procedure such as a photo array or lineup, the suggestiveness of a first-time, in-court identification procedure does not create an unreasonable danger of a mistaken identification. That defense counsel may cross-examine a witness on the suggestiveness of a first-time, in-court identification, or make such arguments to the jury, does not render an in-court identification less suggestive and does not always eliminate the risk that a jury may credit a tainted identification. 
We have recognized that an eyewitness is often utterly confident about an identification, expressing the identification or recollection of identification with subjective certainty, and hence entirely unshakable on cross-examination, Boone. Thus, to counteract the heightened risk of misidentification in the first time, in court identification context, defendants should be afforded a meaningful opportunity to request additional procedures that would, 1. Demonstrate the reliability of a subsequent in-court identification, such as granting an adjournment for a non-suggestive identification procedure to test the witness's identification, see United States v. Brown, or, 2. Reduce the suggestiveness of the in-court identification procedure itself, see Archibald. The determination of whether and to what extent such procedures are necessary to enhance the truth-finding process, and to prevent wrongful convictions, Marte, rests within the sound discretion of the trial court, see People v. Brown. Of course, the ability of the defendant to meaningfully request such protective measures is dependent on the defendant's awareness that the witness may make a first-time, in-court identification. Indeed, if a defendant is unaware before the witness testifies that the witness may make such an identification, the reliability of any subsequent alternative identification procedure, or any measures to minimize suggestiveness, would be vitiated by the witness's opportunity to observe the defendant at the defense table. Archibald, availability of special identification procedures contingent on a defendant requesting such procedures in a timely manner prior to trial. Accordingly, when the people may ask a witness to make a first-time, in-court identification, they must ensure that the defendant is aware of this possibility as early as practicable. We emphasize that the court's obligation to take any action regarding a first-time, in-court identification is dependent upon a timely request made by the defendant, as the defendant may not wish to seek protective measures that would bolster or draw further attention to the identification. A rule requiring courts to order that identification procedures be employed regardless of a defendant's preference would hinder defense attorneys' ability to choose a strategy in their client's best interest and inappropriately circumvent the trial judge's role of evaluating the demands of the particular case. In the absence of the guidance we provide today, the people did not specifically notify the defendant that the witness might be called to identify him. Nonetheless, the body camera footage and the 911 call, together with the people's witness list, which included this witness, alerted defendant that the witness would likely make a first-time, in-court identification. Defendant did not request any alternative identification procedures before the witness testified but sought preclusion of the identification during her testimony. 3. Trial courts may exclude relevant evidence if its probative value is outweighed by the prospect of trial delay, undue prejudice to the opposing party, confusing the issues, or misleading the jury, people v. Primo. The admissibility of a first-time, in-court identification is therefore vested to the discretion of the trial court. In exercising this discretion in the context of a first-time, in-court identification, the court must consider the danger of misidentification from the suggestiveness of a first-time, in-court identification, and whether there are independent assurances of the identification's reliability that outweigh this risk. Such considerations may include the witness's familiarity with the defendant, the quality of the witness's opportunity to observe the defendant before the incident in question, see Marshall, People v. Ramos, the witness's ability to provide accurate descriptive details regarding the defendant, see Briscoe, the time between the crime and the testimony, and whether there is other, 
reliable trial evidence corroborating the identification, see People v. Allen. In evaluating the danger of misidentification, the court may also take into account the suggestiveness of the in-court identification procedure itself. When a defendant is not given advance notice of the identification, the trial court may also consider whether there was any reason for the failure to provide notice and the extent to which it has prejudiced the defendant. In general, to limit the risk that a trial court will exclude an identification for lack of notice, the people should provide explicit notice at the earliest possible juncture. Going forward, application of this framework should render attempts to elicit unnoticed, first-time, in-court identifications uncommon, and the admission of such identifications even less so. We acknowledge, though, that situations may arise where the people, through no fault of their own, are not themselves aware of a witness's ability or willingness to make an identification during their trial testimony. Trial courts must assess how to proceed in such scenarios on a case-by-case -case basis. During her trial testimony, the witness established her ability to observe the shooting and view the shooter. She described the shooter in detail, establishing that she had a sufficient opportunity to view the shooter in order to make a reliable identification. And her trial testimony, which took place only five months after the shooting, mirrored her previous description of the shooter on the 911 call. Moreover, the witness's identification was far from the only evidence linking defendant to this crime. The victim, who had met defendant prior to the shooting, also identified defendant as the shooter and confirmed that he and defendant appeared on the surveillance video. Indeed, defendant can be seen on the video not only wearing the precise clothing that the witness had described, but also holding what is clearly a gun. The police investigator, for his part, testified that defendant was stopped driving the same vehicle in which the shooter can be seen fleeing the scene. Though the people were not aware of any duty to provide notice, this does not appear to have significantly prejudiced the defendant, given that he was provided with the witness's unequivocal statements that she could identify the perpetrator. Here, Supreme Court therefore did not abuse its discretion as a matter of law in denying defendant's request to preclude the witness's first time, in-court identification. In any event, any error was clearly harmless, see People v. Harris, People v. Owens, People v. Oliver. 4. This court is unanimous in its resolve to curtail the dangers of first-time, in-court identifications. Our approach ensures that defendants have notice and an opportunity to be heard and empowers trial courts to ensure the reliability of such identifications before they are elicited at trial. Beyond that, trial courts are well-equipped to assess the admissibility of first-time, in-court identifications and exclude those that pose a risk of misidentification or other undue prejudice. Defendants' remaining contention lacks merit. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Decided December 14, 2023. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law www.nypti.org slash law